0: One other thing I'd like to see is if you can credibly say on those placards that this crowd is bigger than your inauguration crowd.
1: Hello and welcome to The Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Today, we're going inside the White House. From 2009 to 2017, Ben Rhodes served as a deputy national security advisor to President Obama. He oversaw the administration's national security communications. He did speech writing, public diplomacy and global engagement programming. Uh, if that wasn't enough, in 2007 and 2008, uh, Ben was a senior speech writer and foreign policy advisor to the Barack Obama campaign. And before that, he worked for the former congressman, Lee Hamilton. So it's safe to say the man has some stories. His new book, The World As It Is, talks about what it's like to work alongside a radical leader like Barack Obama. What's it like when idealism is confronted by reality? How the White House really functions? And that one thing that I always wonder about, what would it be like to be friends with Barack Obama? Ben dropped by to chat to us about ideals, the future, Trump and much, much more. So tell us, Ben, why did you decide to write the book?
0: Well, when I left the Obama White House, uh, I thought about whether or not to write a book, and I realized that I had two things uh, that could make this book work. Uh, one is that I was 29 years old when I went to work for Barack Obama, so I was relatively anonymous. And I thought that that would be an interesting way to start a political memoir, that I could bring a reader into that experience as a more recognizable figure. Uh, I wasn't an established public figure like a Hillary Clinton who writes a memoir. I was someone who came of age in this job, uh, went from being 29 to 39. Uh, and I thought that if I could tell that story personally what was it like to be in those rooms, what was it like to go through that experience, uh, I could both show what happened to me and also illuminate the events that happened uh, in the Obama White House. Uh, the second reason I, said I thought I had a unique opportunity that a lot of political memoirists don't have of having been there the entire time. Uh, so I walked into the Oval Office with President Obama on the first day, and I flew with him on Air Force One out to California after Trump's inauguration. Uh, so I had a real opportunity uh, to create a work of history that could stand up, that could tell the whole story of the Obama White House from the beginning to the end.
1: And from your whole time at the White House, what would you say you're most proud of?
0: What I'm most proud of is a project that I worked on myself, which was the Cuban negotiations. Uh, I led the process of negotiations with the Cubans over the course of two years to normalize relations. Uh, And this included probably 20 secret meetings with Alejandro Castro, Raul Castro's son. Uh, And I tell the story in the book of what it was like to go to the Vatican at the end of that process. Uh, And we went with the Cubans, and the Vatican didn't know how much progress we'd made. They were there to be a a third-party witness to these negotiations. But we'd actually finalized the agreements before we arrived, and they were stunned. And actually, I remember that we had to meet separately the Americans and the Cubans with the Vatican so that the cardinal could make sure that we were each telling the truth that we meant to do this. Uh, I walked in. He said, are you really going to normalize relations uh, with Cuba? I said, yes. And he said, who are you? (laughs) Um, And after that, though, we read these agreements out loud. And I saw that the Vatican officials were overcome with emotion. Um, And they said, you know, this is bigger than just the U.S. and Cuba. This can show how... A conflict can come to an end and how old adversaries can make a new beginning. And so to me, that process was personally satisfying, not just because I was involved in these negotiations, but because it was about something bigger than just the US and Cuba. It was about showing that you could turn the page on the past, which was a very Barack Obama type of, uh, of notion. Uh, and it makes me hopeful that even in the current moment we're in, that we can get back to that, that kind of approach.
1: So this is this is a huge question, but like, talk us through the process of what um, it's like to write a speech for Barack Obama. Did you, do you start on your own? Do, does do you work with Barack Obama the whole time? Tell us tell us what it was like.
0: Well, it's a daunting thing to write a speech for Barack Obama. Frankly, the better the speaker, uh, the more intimidating it can be to work on a speech. But the fact is, he took a lot of interest in his speeches, uh, and I, I describe in the book uh, a process where I would go in uh, to see him. Uh, And he would dictate often the outline of what he wanted to say, You know, sometimes pacing around in a circle in the Oval Office uh, and and working through point by point the argument that he wanted to make. Then I would take that and circulate a draft to all manner of advisors, cabinet officials, White House staffers, and they would all try to get their own points in. Uh, And I'd become an editor at that point. I'd essentially have to decide which essential change needs to be made to make a certain policy point. But how do I avoid this getting watered down so it's not what Barack Obama wants to say? And then it would go back to him, and we'd be passing drafts back and forth. Uh, And he'd often take a pretty heavy pen to that process. Um, In the extreme cases, I remember the morning that we were leaving for Oslo for the Nobel Peace Prize address that he gave. He handed me back a completely rewritten speech on yellow legal pad paper, and we spent the rest of the next 24 hours passing back and forth drafts up until the point that he literally – went to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, So it could be very intensive like that, or sometimes it could work a little more smoothly. Uh, But it was always a a collaboration.
1: Tell us a bit about how your working relationship evolved, because you started as a speechwriter. And as we all know, your role kind of developed. Tell us how that happened.
0: Well, I came in as a speechwriter. And part of what that means is that you have to really understand the worldview of the person you're writing a speech for. Uh, you literally have to get inside their head and anticipate what do they want to say, what do they want to see get done, how do they look at problems in the world. Uh, and I ended up forging a pretty close bond with uh, President Obama because of that. Over time, I moved into different roles. So I became his communication strategist and a spokesperson for him. Uh, and then I entered into the policy-making process. And I took on individual projects uh, like Cuba or defending the Iran negotiations. At the same time, though, more importantly, in a way, I just developed a close relationship and even friendship with him over the course of the eight years. And what I described in the book is we had kind of a running conversation. There weren't many people who were there the whole time. Um, And so not just in meetings, but in car rides in between meetings and in hotel rooms uh, and in quiet moments in Air Force One. Uh, I had conversations with him on everything from foreign leaders to our favorite movies, uh, to issues like racism in the United States, uh, to sports. Uh, and in the book, I wanted to let that voice emerge, that Barack Obama that I knew in private. Uh, I wanted to give readers a glimpse of that person. It was a really difficult experience uh, to be thrust into that position at such an early age. I was 31 years old uh, when I went into the White House. And, you know, at times I didn't handle it that well, uh, it was grueling. Um, and I wanted to let readers experience how it changes you to be in that type of, of stress. And you know, all of my personal relationships were affected one way or another. Uh, and I went, uh, over the course of the eight years, I got married, I had two children, and I wanted to show the complexity of how do you build a private life uh, and maintain personal relationships when you know you're gonna be pulled away uh, from a lot of things, from holidays and vacations, uh, and, 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 and other important anniversaries uh, in order to serve the president of the United States of America. Um, ultimately, you know, I found a way to carve out some space uh, that I could preserve some of my own life, even as I had this overwhelming experience. But at times you could lose control. You know, at times uh, there'd be such an overwhelming period of crisis uh, that you lose that type of balance Or I described in the book what it was like for someone like me who kind of came from nowhere to be in this position to suddenly find themselves the subject of intense criticism from political opponents. Um, And so I really wanted to, in my own way, figure out what had happened to me by writing this book um, and in so doing, give people a sense of the personal toll and the personal journey that people in these positions go through. Well, the interesting thing for me is I was there for eight years, and that seems like a long time. But in reality, you're really racing the clock to get as much done as you can. And later in the administration, uh, I became much more deliberate about saying, I'm going to make a list of the things that I want to get done, that I think I can do in this job that I couldn't do in any other job in the rest of my life. Uh, And so that's how I raised my hand to try to lead secret negotiations with Cuba, or I got particularly interested in cleaning up the legacy of, of U.S. bombs that are still littering, littering a country like Laos, uh, or I prioritized my work uh, on issues like the Iran nuclear deal uh, or the effort to get a Paris climate agreement. I think if I had to do it over again, at the beginning of the administration, I would have been much more deliberate about saying, these are the things that I want to get done. You know, here's my bucket list for this job. Because when you're in the White House, you can be defined by just everything that is coming at you. There's always a crisis. There's always something that you need to respond to. Uh, And you can lose sight of the enormous capacity that you have to try to make positive change in the world. I thought that going in. But again, if I had to do it over again, I would have been much more deliberate at mapping out early on, where do I see the opportunities to make a difference? I got there about halfway through the administration, and that frankly led to some of the most rewarding things that I was a part of.
1: So after your time in office had played out, what was it really like to feel professionally and politically uh, like your work has been undone by Trump's administration?
0: It's not an enjoyable thing to see uh, so much of your work the target of your successor. Um, I describe in the book kind of the numbing process that both Obama and I went through after the election. You know, fully coming to terms with the fact that we felt like we had done a reasonably Good job. And yet, we were being replaced by somebody in Donald Trump who literally represented the opposite of every political and economic social belief that Barack Obama had. Um, You know, it's interesting when I see him take aim at the Obama legacy, people think that the scorecard of accomplishments is what is most distressing. Uh, For me, it's a, a couple of other things. You know, one, some of the things I worked on. I knew I raised people's expectations. You know, I remember going to Cuba after the normalization of relations, and Cubans coming up to me and saying, we're finally hopeful for the future. Finally, for the first time in decades, things might change. You know, my life might get better because of this. And you could just sense that hope all over Havana. And now all those people are let down because Donald Trump is not moving forward with that policy. There was a similar dynamic in Iran where there was a sense that we can get maybe beyond some of the complicated history, perhaps there could be an evolution in a better direction for the Iranian people. I think that door has now been closed too. So it's that sense that, you know, I personally was involved in raising people's expectations and I have this loss of control now. Uh, I can't prevent the fact that, that Donald Trump is closing those doors and letting those people down. To me, the other thing that is so difficult is I describe in the book just how much the, the office mattered of the presidency and the surrounding of the White House. You know, every word we labored over. I mean, I think about how many sleepless nights I had worrying about one sentence that could have been put wrong in a speech. And now, now we have an occupant of the White House who could care less about those things. The basic decorum of the office, trying to tell the truth, uh, recognizing that words matter. Uh, and so it's, it's watching that entirely different approach that is actually more difficult you know, than any one policy. It's interesting. I ended the book on a hopeful note about what I think Obama's lasting legacy will be. And I realized in writing it that legacies, when you leave office, are often thought of as the list of accomplishments that you had, the laws that you passed, the foreign policy decisions you made. But I realized in writing the book that there's something more intangible. You know, my political hero was John F. Kennedy. And I couldn't even name you the five or 10 laws that he passed or top foreign policy accomplishments. It was a feeling he gave people. It was the speeches he gave. It was the inspiration that he offered so that even decades after he was dead, uh, I could feel compelled to get into public service because of him. And my hope and expectation is that Barack Obama was that kind of figure, that beyond any individual policy, he reached people billions of people potentially in the United States and around the world and made them think somewhat differently about themselves and made them believe that they could potentially make change or or made them go into some type of service in their community. And then I think about what are all those people going to do? I can't even imagine the change that is going to be made by all the people who are touched in some way by Barack Obama or his words or his presidency. Um, So my hope is that his legacy is a living thing uh, and that is manifested above all in what other people do. Uh, not just in what he did while he was president.
1: Now, of course, some of us are busy getting ready uh, for the 13th of July protest against Trump's visit. What would you like to see on the placards uh, when the UK protesters turn out in their droves, which hopefully they will?
0: Well, I hope you all give him a big London welcome. Um, And uh, I think it's important that people who don't like the direction of his leadership uh, come out and protest to show the vibrancy of democracy. I would say that the the overall message that I think needs to be delivered is that as our closest friend in the world, you know, we want America back. You know, we want our friend back. Uh, We want the America that we know and believe in. Uh, Those types of messages. You know, because what Donald Trump has tried to do is put forward a very, I think, dangerous vision of how America should be governed, how America should act and claim that that is the actual America, you know, that he is making America great again and he's making America respected around the world again. He declares this over and over again, even though it's pretty clear that people around the world much preferred Barack Obama's leadership. He asserts that he has made America respected. And I think it's important for Americans to see and for him to see that particularly from our closest friend in the world, this is not who we are as Americans and this is not what Brits admired in Americans. Uh, that, that there is an alternative America that frankly is the traditional America, the one that you have known uh, for for decades, if not centuries, that Donald Trump doesn't represent. And, and so that would be a very powerful message to see. One other thing I'd like to see is if you can credibly say on those placards that this crowd is bigger than your inauguration crowd.
1: So the midterms are obviously on the horizon and uh, there is also the 2020 elections. Do you have any predictions for us?
0: My... Uh, Predictions going forward, uh, I, I think the Democrats are likely to win uh, this November in the congressional election. Um, those elections in the United States are generally defined by negative energy. People turn out to vote in what we call midterm elections, usually to vote against something. And there is a lot of energy and enthusiasm among Democrats to vote in this election. Um, and so I think you will see the House of Representatives luckily turn back to Democratic control. I think the 2020 election is much harder because there it is not enough to just have negative energy. It's not enough for people to just vote against even somebody like Trump. We will need an alternative message and an alternative messenger. Uh, And there'll be a wide open democratic race to see who that nominee is, who's the successor to Barack Obama as the leader of the Democratic Party. Um, I'm hopeful, though, uh, that ultimately you'll see uh, a defeat of Trump, mainly because I frankly just believe a majority of Americans don't feel represented by Donald Trump. And so if the right person can capture that message, um, I think that we can return to a more recognizable and sane form of leadership after 2020.
1: So we've talked about what's next for the country. Uh, what's next for
0: you? So I'd always wanted to be first and foremost a writer. Um, and even when I went into politics, I went into politics as a writer, as a speechwriter uh, for uh, Barack Obama. Uh, and he used to tell me, even then when we were in the White House, said our job was to tell a story, a really good story about America and who we are and what we represent. Um, what was so wonderful about writing this book is I was able to speak in my own voice again uh, and to tell my own story, uh, my own way. And, and going forward, I, I definitely want to do more writing. Uh, it felt liberating, actually, to, to almost reclaim my own voice after a decade uh, when I was speaking for somebody else. Uh, I've now told my own story, I'd like to tell other people's stories. Uh, And so I think I'm going to try out writing for magazines and hopefully writing more books uh, where I can tell the stories that I think matter uh, and stories that I hope illuminate what is happening in the world today. Uh, Because we live in a world of so much change and there's so much fractured information that reaches people on social media, on our phones, on television. I think in that kind of world, stories are even more important. Uh, to to actually get at the humanity uh, behind the issues that we're seeing every day. In addition to that, uh, I'll be politically active. I'll always do my part as I can uh, to help uh, progressives and people that I uh, share values with uh, get elected in whatever small way I can contribute. Um, And so I'm looking forward to doing a variety of different projects. you may hear me do more podcasting. Uh, so I I, I I feel like this is a time in my life when I can try out a bunch of different things. But at the core of that, uh, I always know that, that writing is going to be the thing that I love to do the most.
1: That makes sense. And and last question, last question. Did you have any time to read in the White House? And if so, what would you recommend? What's on your nightstand?
0: So I had much less time to read than I would have liked uh, in the White House. But I always did uh, try to carve some time out. Um, and at any given time, uh, I would always try to read uh, good long-form journalism. So you'd often find the New Yorker magazine uh, on my nightstand my night, night because, uh, frankly, uh, I felt like you could get lost in all the information coming at you in our daily news media. And I liked stories that went beyond uh, just the day-to-day. Um, I also uh, like to read uh, books that illuminated the large trends that we were dealing with in the world. Uh, and a book that both uh, President Obama and I read very carefully in that last year in office was Sapiens, um, you know, a book that gives you the broadest possible context. Uh, for what is happening in our world that starts kind of at the beginning of human history and takes us all up to today. You're looking for that kind of perspective when you're in the White House. Uh, I read a lot of the books of Joan Didion uh, when I was in the White House. She's a writer who's better than maybe anybody else at capturing the complexities of American culture and politics and how they come together uh, over the last several decades. Uh, So you could always find that type of work on my nightstand. Uh, And lastly, I'd like to read about the issues and places that I was working on. Um, So uh, I often read books about Cuba, uh, a terrific biography of Che Guevara by John Lee Anderson, uh, a number of different histories of Cuba. So I try to have that mix uh, of perspectives. What I wish I could have read more of was fiction uh, when I was in the White House, because sometimes you need to escape the reality uh, that you're living in there.
1: Okay. Okay. I lied. Because of your answer, I've got to ask you one more question. Uh, So If there was one book uh, that we should pick up that's going to help us understand and get get a handle on U.S. politics today, apart from your own book, of course, uh, what would it be?
0: Well, you could read 1984 by George Orwell um, to understand the somewhat dystopian reality uh, that we're living with um, uh, in the United States right now. I think uh, beyond that, um, you know, American politics is a very hard thing uh, to write about these days. Um, but I do think about people who approach it from different angles. Um, I think if you look at uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' latest collection of essays, "We Were Eight Years in Power," um, I think, particularly in the the, the uh, most current essay in that uh, collection, he speaks quite candidly and quite powerfully about race. You know, one of the things in my book that I wanted to lift up is people wanted to kind of almost. Not discuss how prevalent racism was during the Obama years, um, when in fact you can't understand how Donald Trump became president without understanding that that began with him denying that the first African American president was born in the United States and saying he was born in Africa. Um, so I think you know, Tani C. Coates writes very powerfully. And he's not writing political analysis, he's writing about the reality of lived racism in the United States. Um, and he uses it to explain Donald Trump. Uh, and so I thought. Uh, He took on the issue very directly when a lot of uh, American political writers are tentative uh, around hard truth.
1: I'm definitely going to pick that up. Thank you so much for listening to The Vintage Podcast. Ben's book, The World As It Is, Inside the Obama White House, is available now. We're always on the lookout for recommendations, so do also tell us what's on your nightstand uh, by tweeting us at Vintage Books. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And until next time.